What would you do if you could do anything? Welcome back to The Purpose Effect. I'm Elena. So when my mom told me about the, uh, the wartime military sex slaves by the Japanese uh, army, before and during World War II, they were um, known by an incredibly insulting euphemism called comfort women. And she told me about this one woman who was my age, 16, when she was first enslaved and systematically raped. And I remember feeling outraged, but I was thinking, wow, you know, that could have been me. Trigger warning. This conversation covers topics like sexual violence, grooming, and abuse. If you have experienced trauma, please take a look at the show notes before deciding if you will keep listening. For as long as society has existed, so has slavery. And the fact that slavery is one of the oldest businesses in the world might give us some insight into how deep the tentacles of the modern slave trade reach. Slavery is illegal in every country in the world, yet it persists. Sylvia U. Friedman has spent much of her career campaigning against, writing about, and directing funds to end modern slavery. She is an international expert on Japanese wartime sex slavery and an award-winning filmmaker documenting sex trafficking across Asia. Her most recent book, A Long Road to Justice, is a memoir about her work and highlights the stories of the women trafficked and the impact human trafficking has on societies and across generations. When I read Sylvia's book, the thing that struck me forcefully was that the smallest chink in the armor could leave you vulnerable to slavery. The naivety of a teenage girl promised a glamorous city job, or an unforeseen expense that leads you down a debt spiral. Sylvia and I talk about the importance of education in the fight against slavery, the impact it has not just on victims, but generationally and across the whole of society. But to begin with, we talk about where it all began for her and how Sylvia found her purpose in this fight. I've experienced um, the awful humiliation of racial discrimination. You know, as, as, as a child in elementary school, I was the only Asian kid in an all-white um, school and neighborhood. And I didn't have the tools or the maturity to understand that kind of racial trauma of, of uh, being mm-hmm. rejected for simply the way I looked and a different culture at home, you know, and, and a different language and food and, you know, food that smelled you know, didn't help. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I remember I had a piece of dried rice on my shirt and someone was like, Oh my God, is that a, is that a bug or what is that? And I just remember wanting to just shrink down and you know disappear. And I think that does something to you, especially when you're young. So that, that really awful trauma, racial trauma really marked me deeply. And when I look back, it, I'm actually really thankful for it because it was my entry point into justice, you know, in, into having a sense of social justice, having a sense of I want to speak out for marginalized people, for for people who are different and persecuted for it or bullied or, you know, 
made to feel like they're lesser than and second-class citizens. And so when I was turning 16, um, I grew up in Vancouver, uh, in a suburb of Vancouver, Burnaby. And uh, my mom told me about a story she had read in a Korean newspaper because my parents immigrated from South Korea to Vancouver when I was two. So I, you know, I don't really... I didn't really identify with being Korean. Yeah. I identified and I wanted to be, you know, white with blonde hair, blue eyed, because I wanted to fit in yeah. with my classmates. And, um, but when my mother told me I was, I was 16 and I would say that was a time in my life in the 11th grade in high school where I was exploring, um, you know, Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King, Gandhi. um, And, you know, I I was wondering, you know, how, how can I live out justice, you know, reading about these great people. And um, I wanted it for myself, something inside of me burned, you know, when I read of how they stood for what was right, and they helped people in dire need. And um, so when my mom told me about the the wartime military sex slaves by the Japanese uh, yeah. army before and during mm-hmm. World War II. They were um, known by an uh, incredibly insulting euphemism called comfort yeah. women. And, uh, and she told me about this one woman who was my age, 16, when she was first enslaved and systematically raped by dozens and dozens of Japanese soldiers a day and I remember feeling outraged. And also, interestingly, I, I don't know where this insight came because I was so young, but I was thinking, wow, you know, that could have been yeah. me. That could have been me. Like, had I been born, you know, at the year she was born into her very family, you know, I, I could have been taken and tricked and deceived like she was and, and forced into sexual servitude. Um, on the front lines of war. And uh, so that that was something that I would say was the watershed moment that catalyzed my long road to justice. <laughs> Hence, you know, the, the title of my memoirs. And I, I mean, I didn't want to do it all the time. I mean, I, I tried to stop writing my previous book on Japanese wartime sex slavery. Because it's so hard. It was so hard and it was so depressing but what I was grappling with was nothing compared to the, the destroyed lives of these girls and women, up to 400,000 of them all over the Asia Pacific. And, and there was no book in English that I could find in the library. So I uh, effectively wrote the book. And, I, and even with my latest one, I'm, I'm writing the books that I wished I had read when I was growing up in a predominantly white neighborhood with Eurocentric history textbooks and with no Asian role models around me. You know, it's not like Asia, this part of the world where, where we have Asians on TV and in the media, in government, um, you know, in, in the West, it's, it's not, it's not like that. And, and I'm, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for taking this long, difficult road because it's, it's really, molded me and um, yeah, made me who I am. 
you know, also thank you for writing the book. Because while you say that, that in Asia we have more Asian role models, and we do, the subject matter that you're writing about is still taboo, right? And it's not something that parents educate their children about, yeah. the possibility that they could be taken. Um, you, you write this in your book as well. There's a moment where you say that it's just circumstance. It's where you were born and who you were born to that differentiates mm, yes. whether or not this could happen to you or it wouldn't. But I think in mm. Asia, we, but we do need to talk about this and we do need books like, like yours because children growing up in Asia need to know the methods of these people. Um, Absolutely, uh, Elena. I, I couldn't agree more. And um, I did write about the compensated dating girls and boys who are in it to yeah. sell dates and sell, you know, oh, you can you can kiss me for this X amount of money. And uh, they're also called part-time girlfriend, boyfriends. And, you know, they're, they're selling themselves on social media apps yeah. that are encrypted. And that makes it more underground and even more dangerous. So you're, you're absolutely right. And there's something about Asian culture where they don't really talk about things so openly. Like I remember my mom, when I got my period or right before I got my period, my mom pointed to the pads <laughs> and said, do you know what these are? And I said, oh yeah, mom, don't yeah. worry. Don't worry. I was embarrassed. And I was like, oh, don't worry, mom. I, we covered it in sex education at school. And she was so relieved. <laughs> That she didn't have to be the one to have this conversation with you. Exactly. And I'm I'm wondering, gosh, how did she learn about it? Yeah. <laughs> maybe she didn't. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe the same thing happened to her. Someone basically pointed her in the direction of the pads. But but yeah, you raise a really important point that we can't be afraid to talk about these things because the secrecy and the shame is also an enabler, an enabler of slavery. You mentioned earlier how young people were selling themselves through encrypted apps. And you also wrote in your book that in 2016, there was an estimated 4.3 million people living in slavery. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you knew what effect COVID might have had on those numbers. Because while movement was restricted and trafficking people across borders might have been more difficult, grooming proliferated and maybe more of the trade was driven underground because of movement restrictions. Uh, and, and also those who are already trapped in slavery were trapped with their traffickers. Mm, yeah, no, it's a great question. And it's so hard to grasp 40 million uh, men, women, and girls suffering. You know, especially when you and I, we, we have decision-making yeah. powers. Like we can change jobs if we wanted to. We can go out and buy, you know, or a meal, groceries. Um, these people are predominantly, you know, migrants or the poorest of the poor, um, and they want to better their lives, you know, and they, they had that hope. And so it's even more disgusting when their hopes are, are crushed because when you, you don't have hope, gosh, it's, it's um, you know, it, you can fall into despair. I, I think that's when... yeah. Suicide potential, you know, is there. Um, so I would say that COVID has um, or will uh, cause a spike in slavery. And perhaps because the travel isn't so um, free right now, but once travel opens up, um, there will be tragically more people uh, because they went into debt 
during the time of the pandemic because they couldn't work. So they took on some debt bondage. And so um, there will be greater numbers of people like that who are paying off an endless debt because if they're not righteous or, or there's no accountability and they're not, you know, they're small time money lenders or money sharks, loan sharks, um, gosh, they, they can keep a person indebted for life. And, and that's, that's what happens in, in parts of the world, many parts of the world. And uh, yeah, so it will definitely cause, you know, more people to be more desperate, you know, take more risks. Hence, they're, they're more vulnerable to exploitation and, and forced labor type situations or forced prostitution. Uh, and also in factories, what I've heard is that some people are saying to their bosses during the pandemic time because they, they couldn't go home. And so they would say, just just feed me. I won't take any pay. Just just give me some food. Allow me to sleep here. And it's 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 quite tragic. We can yeah. make a difference, you know, for the price of a Starbucks a day. Like we we can make a difference. So it's it it breaks my heart and um and for people who may not really grasp what forced labor is or or what you know forced prostitution is, another way that um it's described and and I think this is such a powerful metaphor is um Sex slavery or slavery is like domestic violence on crack cocaine, like an extreme, extreme form of domestic violence. Yeah. So I want to talk about for those people who might not really understand the insidiousness of it, um, particularly with um, sex slavery, how it often happens, how these girls are recruited. And also in your research, you met with men and women who are the traffickers beyond the financial are there other motivations are these people themselves indentured to mafia bosses who run these operations is is it survival for for everybody in the in the ecosystem yeah yeah and and that's something that's not really explored and it so it, it is a variety so you have the gangsters like the mafia operations um which really, you know, they run yeah. like clockwork and it's scary. And I've, I've heard of and I've seen women who were uh, enslaved by the triads, you know, from mainland China to Hong Kong, back and forth, um, coming on a two-week yeah. visa. Uh, they're not anymore mm-hmm. because of the pandemic. Um, so I want, you know, I wonder what other criminal enterprises yeah. <laughs> they're taking on, right? Because <laughs> if, if they can't make money, you know, and they were making huge huge amounts. So it's, it is mammon. It is the love of money that is driving most of it. So you have like the gangsters and the triads, and then you have the mom and pop operations, believe it or not, people who are opportunistic and who are preying on someone that they can have control over and uh, take advantage of in, in a really terrible way. And they'll sell that person. I've heard of so many of these, you know, across Asia, you know, these, these small time business people who are just eerily like you and me, (laughs) and you would never guess that they're traffickers or people who are just wicked in their heart. Like, how can you sell a person like their merchandise? Like in the case of this one uh, young woman who was sold uh, as a bride to an elderly farmer in China, 
it was her friend's auntie who lured her away, took her on a train somewhere else to another town, nearby town, brought her to the one who would break her in, just callously, just inhumanely left her there and she was starved for two weeks. These are people just like you and me, like they, they must have, I don't know, it, mu- it must have been a, a desperation there, um, something broken inside of them to, to think that I can make a quick buck from luring this girl who's only 14 and, you know, stealing her entire life, destroying her life with no remorse. And as for your earlier question, um, yeah, sexual exploitation, it, it comes in so many different forms. And I, I tried to document it just so I could say, here it is. It, it's recorded and, and we're raising awareness. We're shining a spotlight on, um, like, for instance, the Filipina bar girls who were tricked and deceived, promised good jobs. Most of them are single parents and, and they're not educated on contracts or they're not terribly well connected or savvy, some of them. And uh, so unfortunately, they'll fall into the wrong hands and get forced into um, selling their bodies because they have this endless debt that they have to pay off. So one girl, I saw her descent and we were like, oh, how can we get her out? And, you know, I was talking with the frontline worker. I'm like, how can we get her out? Oh, this is so heartbreaking. And we uh, have heard of people buying these women out. But it's not common because, you know, sometimes they'll, they'll raise the price or they, you know, for whatever reason, maybe they don't have enough girls, they won't release her. So there's that type of sex slavery. And then you have the Romeo traffickers who pretend to be their boyfriend and say, oh, you know, I, I'm in love with you. I want to get married to you, but I have, I owe this debt to this gang and they're going to kill me. And and then the girl will say, oh, I'll do anything for you. And then she'll end up selling her body. It's variations on that, on deception, luring, kidnapping is lesser common, but less common, I mean, but it does happen, you know, as in the case of that young girl uh, that I told you about who was sold into um, bride trafficking as a 14-year-old. And she was chained like a dog, by the way, by her farmer husband, her elderly husband. Women who are um, lured from the countryside in, into the cities in, in search of work. I mean, migrant, migrant women. And then they see um, some girlfriends flash a bunch of money. And then, and then these girls will get a cut for luring her. And, and in one case, this, this young woman named Hua in China, uh, it's, it was just so terrible because she was just this tiny, delicate little thing. And she told me she was uh, gang raped to break her in, to break her will. So, um, yeah, it, I, I hope that that answers some of it and I can unpack more. When you wrote about the breaking in, I found that so difficult to read, but also mm-hmm. from a psychological perspective, mm-hmm. you understand it because after they've broken a woman in, they've chained her, they've treated her like an animal, they've raped her, they've crushed her spirit. You also talk about when you spoke with the victims, how lacking in self-worth they felt and that after a while they believe that this is all they're worth. You know, they're, as far as society or culture thinks, they're ruined anyway. 
So what's the harm in selling my body one more time, two more times, five more times? It's not worth anything to anybody anyway. And it just seems that this is a very um, well-planned and structured way to create a sex slave by, you know, you crush their spirit, you make them feel worth, worthless, and you make them completely dependent on you for everything. Absolutely. And then sometimes there is like this Stockholm syndrome where the, the woman who is enslaved empathizes with her captor and it's just this twisted psychological phenomenon where she feels, yeah. you know, sympathy, even love for, for the one who's abusing her or trafficking her. And uh, you brought up a really uh, great point. And it's, I mean, you researched this very well because it, it was what I wanted to get across. And that with the survivors of Japanese military sex slavery across the Asia Pacific on the front lines of war, wherever the Japanese military were, and there were a thousand of these rape camps or so-called comfort stations, 1,000 in China alone. And um, so only the, the toughest of the, the tough women survived that kind of, you know, just repeated rapes. And those who did had, you know, ruined lower parts of their bodies. You know, it was just terrible, you know, and they had sexual transmitted diseases. And it wasn't like today where, you know, those are treated a lot more easily. Back then, it's, it really ravaged a, a person's body. And, um, and so many of these women were actually stuck in the places where they were dragged, like Korean women were dragged to Taiwan, Taiwanese women were dragged elsewhere, and Korean women were, you know, I've heard of them in Thailand, Myanmar, I mean, you name it, all across China, Southeast Asia. And so what I've heard accounts of that really was so tragic um, was that some of them didn't have any means of supporting themselves. So this one Korean survivor of Japanese military sex slavery actually began to sell her body in Thailand because she felt that, you know, worthlessness, that shame that she can't go back into mainstream society and um so you've hit it on the head because i think that's what a lot of the modern day sex slavery survivors also feel like they're so traumatized and they feel like yeah they're just useless and deserve to be kicked around so they get into this rut this cycle of of going from one terrible situation to another frying pan and it's, you know, they can't break out of that cycle until they get healed. And um, so that, that's, that's something that I, I, I was hoping to highlight and uh, really appreciate it that, that you caught that. So what are their options then after being enslaved? How can they move on? Where can they go to heal? There, there's not enough healing resources. And it's, it's so I, I hope we can galvanize more, more people to do that, to you know, put up the money and, um, so far yeah. no one's doing it. So, you know, may, maybe you and I, we can galvanize people, you know, who listen to this podcast. And, and that, that was my hope with the book. So I'm now talking with a whole bunch of people and I'm, I, I realize, gosh, I think I got to do something <laughs> because people are asking me now and I'm like, whoa, okay, I'll do it. And I, I welcome 
people to, to walk together. Yeah. And, and we'll talk about that a bit later, what people can do to help and how they can get mm-hmm. involved. Um, but firstly, I wanted to touch on something that you wrote about in your book, which was a completely new perspective. You talk about the impact of China's one-child policy on slavery, uh, in particular um, sex slavery and recruiting brides from other parts of Southeast Asia. And I'd really like to talk about that because I had never considered that. And I think a lot of people wouldn't understand the what those kinds of um, population control policies, what the impacts of those could be. Yes, yes. It's, yeah, it, it, it's funny though, you know, we, we don't realize until, you know, something terrible happens, like, and then we begin to connect the dots. And I, I felt that way when um, mobile, mm-hmm. like smartphones came out with internet access and immediately one thought that came to mind was, oh gosh, with such easy access to pornography, men could act out their impulses, you know? And so I was, I was expecting a real spike in, uh, you know, sexual assault and, and all that. And, and I, I haven't really looked into it, but I wouldn't be surprised yeah. if there was a correlation with, you know, with, with the, incre- the, the free accessibility, the easiness of, of getting to porn Whereas I remember the days when my friends were telling me, yeah, if you want to get porn, you have to go into this yeah. XXX store and then they, they package it in some kind of like brown paper bag. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't know. I've never been, but you know, some of my male friends. And you have to physically me. walk in there and ask for it. It's not anonymous. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, it's not. So, um, so that's why I, I was. I began to look into this in 2012, and then in 2013 when I went to China, and um, you know, I, I asked around, and, and people uh, resonated. They said, "Yeah, there there will be 20 million women missing, so 20 million more men in China." And I was just thinking, "My God, this is this is." Um, an alarm, like this is, this is an emergency. This is a social emergency. And I, yeah, I mean, I, I knew I could just foresee even more bride trafficking, especially if the surplus of men are undesirable and they are, you know, the undesirables, the older men, they're impoverished because the younger women want to migrate. They want to better their lives. They want to marry eligible men with an upwardly mobile job. And um, so it, it, it is one of the roots for sure that and um, gender discrimination, like the fact that women are not valued. And uh, even in the countryside in China today, there are, you know, if you go into uh, the baby section, the newborn section of a hospital, I've heard that it's all like blue, 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 blue. And, and, you know, girl babies are not as prized because, you know, there's that Chinese saying that when you raise a daughter, you're watering someone else's garden, right? Yeah. And she, you know, she's just going to go away. Whereas the, the man carries the last name and, um, you know, can, can be, you know, the, the parent's uh, retirement plan, right? The, the son supposedly, I mean, there's no guarantee. Kids, Kids have a mind of their own now, right? But um, the shortage 
of women. I mean, that I think that's why there's Vietnamese women, you know, being trafficked. And, you know, I documented one on camera um, and North Koreans, uh, women from Myanmar, even from South Asia, believe it or not. And Indonesia, I mean, you name it, because there's a need. It's it's the need that drives it, you know, and John's the same for, you know, the, the brothels, you know, the, it's, it's the men who, you know, they, they feel like there's, there's nothing morally wrong. And, and actually some of the women said there are so many married men who, who came in. Yeah. You mentioned you go into the hospitals and you see all of these baby boys and no baby girls. So where are the baby girls? What happens? Um, what happens if you give birth to a baby girl and you're from a rural um, community in China, maybe your family is poor. You can't afford to raise a girl just for her to go and marry somebody else and not contribute to your family. So what's happening to the girls? Brilliant, brilliant question because I had uh, a good friend, a mentor over 25 years ago, and she adopted two girls from, from China and they were abandoned. And I had another friend who was leading an NGO that uh, arranged the adoptions for Chinese babies. And uh, most of them were girl babies or a handful were boys with disabilities, with either cleft palate or heart issues. The girls were getting abandoned. You know, so many stories that I've heard of, of baby girls in garbage dumps and and whatnot or being abandoned you know in a public place so that someone could take care of them and um or they're aborted there's there's gender selection abortions that are available although i i believe they they've tried to stop that as well but where there's a will there's a way and when you create a policy a policy that incentivizes only one gender then you just also then create opportunities for people to find a way to make that happen yeah, it, it, exactly. But thank, thankfully, the, they abolished the one-child policy. Thank goodness, right? And um, so we'll, you know, we'll, we'll see. I mean, but the the surplus of men—that's I don't know how they're they're going to deal with that. No. So a lot of your book centers around sex slavery and the slavery of women, and and yes, women make up a higher percentage of slaves, modern slaves. But I was surprised that it's not a significantly higher percentage. I mean, it's almost like a 65, uh, 35 split. So I want to talk a little bit about the men who are enslaved, um, because I wonder if that's one of the barriers to getting funding behind this issue. It's seen as a woman's issue. It's seen as a poor people's mm -hmm. issue. And so mm -hmm. people don't mm -hmm. want to support it or don't see the urgency in it. So... What, what I haven't really talked about publicly, um, it's probably the first time I'm sharing it here, was I had uh, around 6,000 or was it 8,000 words of um, trafficking stories of boys and men. And, um, and I, w I wanted to insert more, actually. But uh, on the advice of my editor, we felt like, oh, it could be a more focused book if you just zone in on women and girls uh, because my heart is it goes out to the men and and particularly because 
I feel like girls and women get a lot of the attention and, um, but the men are very strategic. We, we need to help them, support them, because if they are healed and they're in a good job, they can get married, they can form a family and, and healthy families form the yeah. bedrock of society. And, you know, so many of the people that I met in slavery, men and women, they, they came from broken homes, you know, homes where they were fatherless or they didn't have parents looking out for them. And, and that made them more at risk yeah. and, and vulnerable. And so I highly support and also wanted to raise awareness about, um, you know, the, the debt bondage, the forced labor that, that um, men can find themselves in from predatory agents, you know, middlemen or brokers of jobs who will prey on migrants who are in search of making more money for, for their impoverished families back at home. And um, I mean, they, I've, I've spoken with North Korean men, you know, believe it or not, who migrate to countries like Russia to try to send money back home. I've met Bangladeshi men who, you know, grown men who are crying in front of mm -hmm. me who are in Singapore. And I, my heart just broke. They need help. And, and I, I did call a few people and emailed a few people in Bangladesh asking, do you know any business people who can hire these men? You know, because they, they've just lost this, this amount of money. They weren't paid for like, you know, a year and, and their families are, are nearly starving. Is there anyone? And I couldn't find anyone, but you know, maybe that's what I need to do now. You know, I, I need to find, um, you know, those philanthropists that, and the business people to come together and, and offer them jobs so they don't have to migrate, offer them skills. My, my heart is, is very much for, for the, the boys and men as well. And, you know, I, w I really wish society wasn't so upside down. Yeah, that's a really nice, really beautiful way to put it, that society is upside down. I think also it's one thing that's important to talk about as well is the issue of slavery is it's not getting better. And in fact, it could get worse because things like climate change, uh, conflict, we've seen it in Ukraine already, and that's actually... Uh, a type of slavery that's getting a lot of attention at the moment. A lot of NGOs are talking about the people who are coming to the Ukrainian border and trying to trying to help refugees get, you know, into housing, temporary housing. And some of these people are predators. That's going to create more slaves. Climate change is going to create more slaves. Political instability oh. all over the world is going to create yeah. more slaves. This is not something that's going to go away. And I think what's very important to realize is the intergenerational aspects of that. And you talk about that in your book, because it's, it's not just in our generation and in our lifetimes. This is going to have ramifications down the chain. So yeah, if you can talk a little bit more about also what the impact was on you as a young girl in Canada, mm -hmm. finding out about this kind of slavery, the slavery of other Korean women. And how that impacts? Gosh, yeah, I. That's why I I wrote my books to educate the next generation. Um, there's a quote that says, "No history, no self." You know that that if you don't know where you came from or what happened, if human rights violations and war crimes aren't brought to justice, then 
the line in the sand isn't drawn. So it, the fact that Japanese wartime sex slavery wasn't resolved, I think has impacted modern day sex slavery because had it been dealt with, then Japan, Korea, and China could have had some kind of agreement to stop the sex trafficking of women between borders. You know, as Japan or, or several officials have said, and even some prime ministers that, oh, these, all the women were volunteers. They wanted to make money. And there was no legal or moral responsibility. And I mean, what, what signal does that send to the yeah. world and, and to women, you know, and to men even that, yeah, we're, yeah. we're giving you permission. Like how Trump, you know, would, would call the, you know, the coronavirus, the Wuhan virus or, you know, and, and it gave people permission to, uh, to hate, hate on Asians in, you know, some would argue. And uh, so, yeah, the, the intergenerational aspect is so real. And I, I remember feeling generational racial hatred towards the Japanese because of the unresolved wounds of war that the Japanese government didn't apologize for colonialism and the atrocities committed back then. And, and it was very racial discriminatory in the military sex slavery system by the Japanese the Japanese women were the most expensive, the darker skinned women, as you get darker, it's the cheapest. I mean, it's, it's just so disgusting and egregious. And uh, so I wanted to tell the world and, and the survivors asked me to tell the world. And that's what I'm trying to do. And so once people learn, then they can decide what, what they want to do. So hopefully they can do one, you know, one small thing. And another aspect about the intergenerational um, cycles is that in Southeast Asia and China, you know, a lot of the survivors and victims have relatives who were opium addicts. So it's like these, you know, well-worn opium trading routes, you know, are still perpetuating the same awful, wicked cycles of bondage to drugs to selling women like it's it's all one one package that never went away I really feel very strongly that you know we need to deal with and bring closure and heal the wounds of history and heal these people you know to to build a stronger society to you know try and transform our world so so how can we do that can you tell me a little bit about the Be the Hero campaign and how people can get involved or donate? Yeah. yeah. So w- when people realize that trafficking and exploitation could happen to any one of us, you know, if, if we can have that empathy, um, that it's not just a problem out there, but trafficking can happen right under our noses. So I, I investigated a series of articles um, about trafficking and different forms of slavery across Asia, including the slave groups. It's basically South Asian men from poor families who are tricked and deceived into marriages, sham marriages in Hong Kong, and then forced to work oh. as slaves and beaten by the brother-in-law and even the father-in-law and abused even by the so-called wife. And interestingly, when that story came out, I had a leader from one of the South Asian communities rebuked me and say, how, how dare you shame our communities? So sometimes some of the biggest 
blockages are from the ethnic communities themselves who don't want to look bad. And there's like, I guess, a sense of shame or like they may be a shame-based culture, you know, like Korean and Chinese cultures are. I would say get educated, you know, learn as much as you can, and then you can explore what, what area you want to help in. And it could be talent driven. Like if someone is a counselor, they could um, use their talents to uh, help heal traumatized victims and survivors. An artist, I, I know through the A52 Freedom campaign that my husband and I, Matthew Friedman, helped lead uh, several years ago, we had artists who painted and created the most profound artwork that really touched people's souls because art has that ability. And songs, we produced a slavery song a contest and a CD, music videos. And so we, we tried to do different things. And we even made bracelets for some of the women in, in the red light districts and raise money that way. Um, and we raised, we, we actually raised quite a bit of money. So I would suggest learning about it, give, you can fast from having coffee at Starbucks for a month. And then you, you give that amount or, you know, for the cost of a lunch, give it to a reputable NGO, or you can raise awareness on your social media. You can volunteer your time at an NGO and I think the next step is, I feel like a, a movement is building right now. I would want to come together with, you know, dialogue with some people and see what, you know, what can we do together? Try to find donors, you know, who, who can fund the initiative um, and, and really try to make a dent. Yeah. But I, I really believe that it's the professionals and the corporations now. For, for 20 years, I've been interacting with with NGOs and, and directing money, you know, as a philanthropy advisor for family offices. But after seeing all that and what different groups have been doing, and my husband, Matt Friedman, is the founder and CEO of the Mekong Club, and they work with the private sector, corporations, banks, uh, all the leading brands in uh, eliminating modern slavery and Many of these professionals that have stepped up will give money. Like it, it just happens organically. They'll want to give money to the Mekong Club, or they'll want to, uh, the you know, lawyers or or compliance people at a bank. They'll say, I, "I'm here. I want to write a report." Yeah. You know, can I do something? And so there's there's been this amazing movement of corporations and professionals already, like through the Mekong Club since 2011. And uh, really ramping up from 2013. So I would say that is a very strategic way. And that's, that's the road that I would encourage people to go on if, if you're a working person. Because not everyone is cut out to be on the front lines. I'm not. I'm so sensitive. And naturally a very prissy, very fearful person. I, it's a miracle <laughs> I finished this Yeah, I book. mean, some of the stories <laughs> that you tell in the book about how you went into the red light district to gather information and, you know, got chased and surrounded by pimps and madams. I mean, I could, I couldn't do it. Oh gosh. (laughs) I, I couldn't do it. I don't know how I did it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, hats off to you. I mean, thank you for doing it because you got the, you got the footage, you got the stories. Um, 
I'm also going to put a link in the show notes to the Be the Hero campaign so that if people want to get involved, if listeners want to get involved, um, they know they know how they can do that. Thank you so much. Um, but just to just to finish up, I just wanted to ask you, what does purpose mean to you? Purpose is my very soul. It's it's what's in your your heart and soul. What drives you? What what will motivate you to jump out of bed and say yes? You know, and I have been searching for purpose and meaning for for years, for for a decade, and and it it came out of my rock bottom experience when I went through a divorce from a terrible first marriage. I'm now happily married, um, but that's what was the catalyst for me: hitting rock bottom, getting desperate myself. And it forced me to ask, what do I want to do with my life? What is worth dying for? You know, what, what is my passion in life? And that's how I came to find my purpose. And it gives me meaning. And my purpose is I want to help people. I want to help eliminate modern slavery, especially mm-hmm. sex slavery. And I want to help mobilize as many professionals and corporations and banks to this fight because I believe that more than the NGOs, more than governments, even more than the police, professionals have the influence to make a call like this and affect change. You know, those at the top and they have the money to do it. Whereas in frontline NGOs are just scraping by and they can't even work together because there's so much competition. Like I remember feeling so much shock because I had come from the philanthropy sector and I had the red carpet rolled out for me everywhere I went. And then once I was on the NGO side, I had like people like <laughs> telling me off or, or being really mean. And I was like, whoa, I wasn't expecting the competition in the NGO world. I have hope. I, I have hope in professionals that, that especially women, I, I really believe that when women of purpose come together with a common goal, they can really kick ass. You yeah. know, they, they can really make a difference. And, and, you know, women warriors, oh man. So I would say that's, that's a big part of my purpose. I, I love working with women and, and I want to see a women's movement in Asia. And I really believe that we're going to see a women's movement. It'll be the largest, the biggest thing we've ever seen in our lifetime because more than any other time in history, we have more women of influence. Because a hundred years ago, you and I, if we were in China, we would have had bound feet. We might have been second or third or fourth, fifth wife. No name yeah. unless we got married. We couldn't go to school. I mean, now like we've got so many choices. So when I feel down, I tell myself that. I'm like, remember if you were born, yeah. <laughs> if it was a hundred yeah. years ago. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, sometimes particularly recently and particularly over the past couple of weeks, what's been happening in the U S with Rowan Wade, I have felt like we've taken one step forward and two steps back, but yes, progress has been made. We, we, we will get there. And I think when there are more women who are more financially empowered and, in leadership roles, we will really be able to get there faster. We're going to see the acceleration. I really believe it. Yes. Yes. Totally agree. Yeah. 
Thank you so much for your time, Sylvia. Um, I really enjoyed this chat. Um, your book is really eye-opening. I'm also linking to that in the show notes so that people can go and purchase a copy because I think it's really important that people realize, as you've said, that it could happen to any of them. And when you read your book and you read the strategies of the recruiters, you really realize that it could, it could be you. It could be you. It could be your kids. It could be someone in your family. And this is a problem that's not going away. It's potentially only going to get worse. And the tentacles are going to run into all kinds of directions through generations. And we need to make serious steps towards resolving it. Thank you. I really enjoyed our talk. You're a beautiful person. It's really an honor to be here. Thank you so much. This wasn't an easy conversation to have or to listen to. So for those of you who did, thank you. Slavery touches so many of us. And while the majority of the world's slaves are here in Asia, that doesn't mean that this is not a problem that touches the West. Conflict, climate migration, and the surging cost of living will create more slaves. But we can do something about it. If you want to support Sylvia's work in ending modern slavery, you could contribute to the Be the Hero campaign. Or if you're an organization, you could check out the work of the Mekong Club. Or if you want to start by educating yourself, check out Sylvia's book, A Long Road to Justice. The links to all of these are in the show notes. And you'll hear from me again next week. Bye. Bye.